the Great Indoors Friday edition. Well, it's Friday. It's episode 21. Episode. 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 Episode 21. So this is episode 21 of The Great Indoors with Zach and Tina here in Leamington, Ontario. Ooh, uh, deep South. Deep South. The deepest. Today our guest is Riley McLaren. This dude is a pastor in Windsor, Ontario, which makes up the Windsor part of Windsor-Essex. We are the Essex part of Windsor-Essex. And Riley's a colleague of mine. He's a pastor. He's a spiritual director. He works with uh, recently released offenders um and he's now a videographer for his church where he's making a lot of uh, weekly meditation videos for uh, in lieu of the sunday service since we're all on lockdown so uh, he's a thought-provoking guy very thoughtful guy somebody who has a lot to say about many things and uh, i think you're going to enjoy this now be warned there's a little bit of cuss words in this episode if you got a problem with that I'm just going to have to ask you to go check out another one of our 20 episodes. And if you don't like those, well, hey, there's lots of podcasts out there. I hope you find one that's just for you. Your Goldilocks episode of something. Now, before we did the intro, (coughs) we were just talking about Minneapolis. So we're going to sort of parachute you into that conversation between Tina and I right before Riley comes on. So without further ado... There's a lot going on in Minneapolis. Yeah, there's a lot going on in Minneapolis right now. Hmm. Um, I'm on the side of the protesters. I'm not all that concerned about property damage, but the the long-standing implications and effects are perhaps not in the protesters' favor. <sighs> Meaning once the city is destroyed, if the city is, if the city is completely destroyed or burned or um, whatever may happen tonight in the next night or the next night, you know, there's, it could escalate to um, something that's hard to come back from. I don't know. But I don't the know. Thing but is, the like, cop was arrested, so. Yeah. But this has been an ongoing issue. It's not the first time something like this has come up, and I think people are just willing to take a bigger risk. Oh, to yeah. stand up for what they believe in. Oh, I think it's time. For injustice, right? Let's call Riley and see what he thinks about this. Ooh. Let's get Riley on the phone. That's a hard-hitting question Let's right away. In. Yeah. <laughs> we got to give we haven't even Riley a proper intro yet. Hey, Riley. Hey, man, did you say good morning? I said ahoy, hoy. Oh, ahoy, hoy. Hello. Sir. Yeah, can you hear me okay? I think we can. I think we're picking you up just fine. Um, we, we wanted to call you a little bit early because we're currently talking about what's going on in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we were wondering right. if you got any thoughts on it. Oh, gosh. You want to just jump in right there? Wow. Or you can say pass. Holy, That's okay, too. Holy cow. No, you can't well, pass. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I started drinking before you called, and so 
um, I just get my drink on here. Oh, uh, we we but, should get some beers. Know, that would be great. Yeah, we'll get a couple. I'll get a couple beers for us. But uh, I'll. I have an interim question for you. <laughs> <laughs> just while Zach's walking to the fridge to get some drinks. How's sure. your How's your pandemic going so far? How's my pandemic going? Well, you know, I'm I'm more than uh, grateful to talk about what's happening in Minneapolis because it's really important. Uh, and I think because there's two viruses that are really killing people, and it's racism and colonialism and COVID, right? So yeah, I'm definitely open to talking about that. But my own pandemic, I feel kind of bad because. In some ways, I really enjoy the pandemic. <laughs> I, I don't. I see. I, I, I also feel bad for the same reason. <laughs> I, I don't enjoy people, uh, you know, getting sick and dying, or losing no. their jobs, or their businesses shutting down. But um, I kind of, I really enjoy all of society getting disrupted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, did you Did you watch the show on Apple TV? Do you have Apple TV? No. Okay. There's a character in in one of the shows who really feeds off of chaos, and he he's working in like a, a very busy <laughs> news studio. And whenever like crazy stuff happens on the show, it's not a comedy show by any means. It's a, it's a severe drama. It deals with like Me Too movement and serious things in the world. But the chaos of all that, this guy just feeds off of it and loves it. And um, yeah. in a way, I can kind yeah. of feel that in the pandemic here. Well, yeah, I, I, I did some thinking about it and some praying about it. I'm like, why do I really enjoy watching all of society get disrupted? Mm. Um, and, like, why am I stewing in that and enjoying it? And, like, because I actually realize I just have a lot of trauma. And, <laughs> and okay. so I'm like, well, isn't it great that, like, other people can experience what I feel all the time? Wow. Yeah, okay. I can, I can, yeah. I can get on board with that. Well, it's kind of like, it's weird and it's not healthy, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to give you the impression like it's healthy. I like did some digging to like understand it. And it's like, I feel on a regular basis disrupted in my own like mental health, in my own like stuff and the way that I um, interact with the world and my day-to-day life in chaplaincy. Um, and so it's sort of like, uh, now maybe everyone can understand how I feel every day, and uh, and it's, so it's a little bit vindictive. Um, but uh, and I've always been drawn to the kind of apocalyptic style of stories and films and things, and that's that's probably because of my trauma as well. But it's something that's so it's so tangible right now, right? Like it's everything's yeah. flipping upside down, and it's something that yeah. we can't ignore. In a lot of ways, right. some things people are choosing right. to kind of turn a blind eye, but for a lot of things, it's like, no, this is real. This is every day. This is not mm-hmm. going away for a while. And so no. that's a really interesting perspective that you're saying, like, you other people are experiencing what you think about often or every day, right? Absolutely. You know, I, uh, I think back to some, like, and some of my, the memories of my own trauma have come up even well, I've been praying and, and sitting with life as it exists right now. And I, I had some like major epiphanies. I don't know if you want me to talk about that like right now, but <laughs> Dude, um, yeah, it's up okay. to you. We have an hour, so. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, um, I, I recently in my office, my office got painted 
and um, on purpose. The, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. my house, yeah, it was completely by accident. It was one of those like chaos theory things. You know, my, my I just came to my house. It was painted one day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't like, like tagged. Yeah. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> Extreme home makeover, pandemic edition. Yeah, that, that, that's Ooh, right. Fat bus. Like the universe, the universe just paints my office suddenly. No, um, no. <laughs> the chair of our elders board painted my office, and um, they did a great job. But for some reason, the bookshelves were mounted on the wall, and they didn't get properly fixed back into the wall. But I put, I started putting my. They're like floating shelves, so I started putting books. My books back up, and I sat on my desk. And my desk was like underneath the bookshelves. And when I was sitting there, all of a sudden, I heard something above me shift. And I braced myself and tried to push myself away from the the, the desk, but it was too late. All the books in the shelves came down on top of me. Whoa! Yeah, yeah, and it concussed me. Like I got concussed. I was seeing stars. Um, at, that's and, a concussion and, symptom. And I was like, Pardon me. That's a real live concussion symptom. Yeah, totally, man, totally. I was totally concussed. And I woke up the next morning and I had all this pain in my lower back and stuff. Kind of, it went away. I have some weird tics now, but no, just kidding. I don't, I don't know. I'm all, like, I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm totally recovered. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, was, um, I was thinking about it and, the, the, and what really stuck with me was the um, how I braced myself. This was about a month ago. I braced myself, like tensed up for a brief second. And the thing that really got me about it was that feeling is really familiar. Hmm. Where does that come from? And so I was just thinking about that a lot, praying about that, talking to my spiritual director, talking to my uh, clinical supervisor. And I realized that I braced myself in every area of life with all people I brace myself before I say anything. I uh, and it's almost like, what's going to happen? Um, we're we're both snapping our fingers. Really you know when you snap your fingers at a poetry slam because you like what they're saying. Yeah, we're, we're both doing that now. I think I think we're also uh, bracers before we speak. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah, I don't. You're not alone, man. Just so you know, you're not alone in this. It's real. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, well, I, I learned that comes from, that's very old in me. And the thought that came to me was like, it would be really nice to one day not have to brace myself mm-hmm. like I do, even with people I love, like people that I care about, that I know love me, that aren't going to abandon me, not going to betray me, not going to harm me. But do I you really know that? Myself. Pardon me? Do you really know that or do you have to keep convincing yourself of that? Um, I really do know it. I, I can honestly say I really do know it, but I still brace myself as, as though it's very instinctual. Right. And I think once again, that goes back to trauma. Um, and it goes back to my biological dad, you know, he would drop, drop me back off my brother and I at my parents after a weekend uh, with him. And he would say things like, I don't know when I'll ever see you again. Whoa. And I was like five years old yeah. and I would just, I would just bawl my eyes out and I would cry. And I, my dad, you know, struggles with a lot of different things and, and he can be pretty melancholy and depressive. Um, but you know, uh, you know, it's been a long journey, but the, all of these things caused me to brace myself 
or something something bad is going to happen. And it's so instinctual, it was so much a part of me. And so once I was able to kind of name it and to identify it, it start it starts to kind of lose its power because it's a, it's what they call a complex. A complex is a is an unconscious psychological entity that kind of like lives inside of us almost like like a spirit or something yeah. but it, it is has a life of its own and it's what helps us it, what creates our personalities all this sort of thing these these complexes uh, when we're young help us develop our identities and into adulthood but when we over identify with them they have a life of their own and they just show up randomly in random situations with disproportionate feelings disproportionate reactions and um, to situations. And so this is a, I, I identified a complex, but the complex only has power as long as it's not named. As soon as it's seen, yeah. as soon as it's identified, it starts to actually lose its grip. Um, it doesn't operate under the radar. Um, huh. So I've heard like um, one of my favorite writers, Peter Rollins, um, he said, you know, that we're all haunted houses. Oh, and yeah, the ghosts aren't there because they can't let go of us. It's because we can't let go of them. And, and, and so, you know, a, a ghost that's not acknowledged becomes a specter, knocks over shit. It, it like slams cupboards and slams doors and makes all sorts of havoc until it's acknowledged. And once it's acknowledged, then it can leave. And, I, you know, I've seen how that's really true and how, you know, times like this and the pandemic kind of show my own haunting, the ways that I'm haunting, uh, haunted and, and uh, learning how to be with myself and be with my ghosts, not just get rid of those complexes, not just kind of like, oh, I just need to exercise them from me. Uh, you know, exercise the demons. No, nothing like that. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, Pet Detective? Ace Ventura Pet Detective? <laughs> that's, that's, you got it, yeah, man. man. You got that reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, it's more about relating. It's relating to those complexes. It's like sitting down with them for tea and having a chat, yeah. you know, and ask them what they have to say and, and uh, helps me have a little bit more. Well, let me, myself let me ask boss. you this question. Cause I feel like you're going to have some, some insight into it. I I'd say I admire this about you. We're in the same line of work, but um, something I admire about you and, and is really coming out and what you're saying right now is sort of how you, um, if you went to, you know, the doctor and said, Hey, I have a ghost and I can't quite figure out what to do with it. Um, he, he'd give you a pill, but it wouldn't be for ghosts. It would be for, uh, psychosis (laughs) or some, some sort of, uh, mental problem that he would, uh, assume you have. But when you, when you explain it and talk it out like that and talk about it in terms of, uh, you're using a metaphor for this complex, the metaphor of a ghost, but it, it sounds as, it just sounds as true as any other diagnosis. Um, and so this, this admiring I'm doing is about your ability to talk in, um, it's not a theological term, but it's a metaphor. Maybe it's theological, um, or cosmological, it's something it's, you're talking about some sort of plane of existence in metaphoric terms. But um, yeah. it's interesting. You're you're bringing out a, a truth about yourself and about your experience that you can affect and are affected by, and you're speaking in terms that are very anti, like modernist, if you will. 
interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I think I know what you mean. You know, when you say anti-modernist, it's, you know, this sort of post-enlightenment that, that uh, project that's kind of held us all captive for a long time and hasn't given us an imagination. That's what I'm saying. You're living out of the imagination, but it's not, it's, it's yeah, not yeah. hokey. It's tangible. Yeah. Right, right. It's tangible for you, which is maybe post, that's postmodern, that is tangible for you, so therefore it's tangible. Yeah, yeah. And you know what, like, whether it's more modern or postmodern, I think, you know, the, you know, the, the point for me is that I, I just need to figure out how to get through my life. Mm-hmm. And the tools that I was given maybe early on in the church and the tools that I was given in the culture, neither were helpful um, and not entirely unhelpful, but not entirely helpful either. Not entirely unhelpful and not entirely helpful. There was a lot of missing pieces. So it sounds like Pete yeah. Rollins is right up your alley. Yeah, you know, well, I think he was able to name a number of things. Yeah. I, I've got to like, have a drink with him and chat and have dinner. And, and um, you know, I've you know, studied psychoanalysis. Um, my mentor is a senior Jungian analyst. Um, Where? And, and I've done... Uh, I've done psychotherapy under his supervision with sexual offenders for like seven years. Um, and so like looking at the unconscious and, uh, some of these things that are kind of ineffable so we can only use symbolic language. But the truth of the matter is all language is symbolic. Mm -hmm. And the myth of like, of the enlightenment was that the universe is a big machine. And if we just like, know it's all its fucking parts, we can kind of figure it out. And then we have all the answers, but then like, World War One, World War Two hit, and we realized that modernism is really good at killing mass amounts of people as well, um, like inventing, like science inventing the atom bomb. So you know, turning science into just a, virt- a pure virtue, yeah, you know, is kind of a, a form of denial. <laughs> and uh, and you know, and Christians vilifying science is also another form of denial. So my point is, there's like these two opposite spectrums. And both aren't helpful and both claim to have all the answers and the solution, the pill, the thing that will bring you all the satisfaction that you want in your life. And both, I think, are fundamentally bankrupt in a lot of different ways. And so wrestling with uncertainty and uh, and unknowing, I think, is a path in the Christian tradition that has been obscured, but is, is very much part of the Christian tradition, as well as... Um, reckoning with uh, an integration of mind and heart and body and relationship and creation uh, and um, uh, spirit. There's, I think there's a, there's an integrative path that we can all work towards and, and strive for that is good and, and not as much an answer as it is a path. I think Christianity to me is a path. It's mm-hmm. not an answer. It's a good way to put it. And, uh, yeah, and so it's like I choose I choose this path. Everyone needs a path, and this is the path that I choose. Sometimes I, I believe it, and sometimes I have a lot of doubts, and that's okay. It can hold all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard I was reading Andrew Root. Do you know that guy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a pastor in a secular age. Yeah, secu- a lot of secular age stuff. So one of the books that's sort of uh, Charles Taylor, right? Did you say Charles yeah, Stanley? Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, he's, no, 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 it's a Charles Taylor. He's into Charles Taylor. I guess you could listen and find out, but I yeah. think it's a Charles Taylor. Um, <laughs> so this book's about, this book's called like Dinosaurs, Zombies, and Exploding Stars or something, and it's about mm-hmm. talking about science and youth ministry. And he yep. he goes pretty hard in the youth ministry category. He's got some pretty intense youth men books, but he talks about science, quote unquote, as oppositional to faith only when science is kind of understood as a means of proving that the universe and all of existence is ultimately impersonal. Whereas like the, the claim of faith is that there is a personal uh, force, energy, being. Um, you can really get into like hard theology of what is a being and that God is not a being among beings, but is beyond beings and the source of beings, but uh, is not himself a being like other beings. So maybe this is getting a little too. That's over my head. (laughs) No, no, I I know. I'm I'm tracking with you exactly. Like, yeah, God, God doesn't exist like other things exist. Um, yeah. But John Caputo says that God doesn't exist. God insists. Okay. I don't so, understand what that means. You know, so the, the insistence of God is the notion that God is always interrupting. Hmm. God is the thing that's always interrupting, that's always insisting. Um, uh, God doesn't exist like other things exist. Right. And as soon as we treat God like an object, like the Martin Buber thing, you know, where, you know, I, the, know. The, I, know. The I, I and thou, you know, object. Uh, subject sort of thing. God is not an object to be examined, as the Orthodox would say, but a mystery to be explored. Hmm. You know, yeah. the, um, and, and so the as soon as we objectify God, God ceases to be God, because God is beyond our reason, right? Yeah. Anybody um, that I'm goes sorry. for the the man in the sky, anybody that wants to debate me that there's a a man in the sky riding clouds, like you win. I'm not going to argue yeah. that. I'm not. That's not what I'm about. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I would say that it's not creative. So kind of bringing this down to earth, (laughs) um, you know, uh, I think uh, I'm uh, like, I I really uh, find myself annoyed uh, both with like classical apologetics and with um, modernistic atheists. As soon as like guys like Dawkins and others start to make statements about God, they've left their field. And so as soon as science says things like the universe is impersonal, that's not a scientific statement. You can't, you can't say that. You don't know that. You can't use any kind of empirical basis for establishing that. Um, you're del- delving in the area of like anthropology and theology and philosophy. And so as soon as scientists break out of their field, and start making these metaphysical statements or ontological statements, then they lose credibility. Um, and, uh, and it's like, I, I, I love, I love science. I love theoretical physics. I love neuroscience. I love all this stuff. Right. And it's not an enemy of my faith at all. Right. Um, but both the Christian fundamentalist and the atheist are the same person. Mm hmm. Well, Those not assholes. every atheist. Not there. There are. There's the mainline atheists, but then you've got like the evangelical atheists, the fundamentalist yeah, yeah. evangelical yeah, atheists. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah that's what I mean. I mean, like the the like, new like, atheist guys, the, the guys that are interested in in like shaming people that uh, have any kind of belief in God, uh, and they and they treat it like an evangelistic thing, crusade to yeah. rid the world of religion or something. I'm like, you and fundamentals are the same person, and you're the same asshole, <laughs> and uh, and it's and it's rooted in a, just a fear of uncertainty it's a a fear of being wrong um and i need to have all my ducks in order i need to be right in order to like feel safe and and have a purpose or any kind of uncertainty um mystery is uh, an affront to my own life and my own identity tina what are your thoughts on all this? I'm so, I'm sorry, Tina. That's okay. I can. Uh, I'm having a hard time tracking all of it because there are so many new ideas that I'm hearing. What's the newest? Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm still stuck on um, when you said that God doesn't exist; He insists. And so then that yeah. that sent me off on a little rabbit trail for a little bit about like, huh. Where's, where's God like, right? Like, where do I see God now in this? Because I'm sure, I'm sure some people are upset with God over the virus. Why did he let that? Like all of these questions come up. Um, and yeah, totally. And I'm kind of thinking kind of like the, what you were alluding to earlier about all of these injustices and things that are wrong and systems that are backwards and not you know good good for anything it's like well it's causing it this all of this is causing us to examine everything and so it's like well maybe and even like churches not being able to meet in person right now like many people are struggling with that but at the same time to those that are involved and to even the congregations, it might be taking a different perspective and going, huh, is there something we can do differently? Is there something that's good in this? Is there, you know, even, or even, you know, when we can meet again, there'll like, people will maybe appreciate what, you know, I don't know. It's all of this. I got stuck on that. So that's where my brain is right I now. Think you, just, took it, you took it a left turn. I did. I, I've put us on a left. Uh, yeah. You started with, um, God as kind of like an agent of COVID. So God, why is God letting this happen? Why is God either passive or why is he, um, why, why did he give us this plague? Um, Is God to blame? Why isn't God not snapped his fingers and made this disappear? But then how do you, Riley, how would you talk about the insistence of God in this moment? Sure. Yeah. I think that, I think that's a great question. And, you know, something that um, I think we all wrestle with in one way or another, if we're really honest. And for me, um, I read this recently, maybe I'll put this in perspective, just recently, a local businesswoman uh, started a small business. She's, I met her in a local cafe. She's a friend, um, but she's also very like openly an atheist agnostic. And, um, and, but, you know, she's like, 
supported my chaplaincy ministry. She really believes in what I'm doing, the work I do with offenders. Um, you know, I spend time with people that have done awful, awful things, and yet she still wanted to support it, and she really believes in my work, and trust me. And so I felt really honored that she would support me financially and, and um, whatnot. And she actually posted a thing on Facebook and tagged me in it. And, and basically said, if, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't believe in God, but if God exists, why does God allow all this stuff to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, and the classic thing, is God not good? Would, you know, is like, how could you say God is good or all powerful when all this stuff's happening? Which is a classic kind of theological question. Theophany, called, right? Uh, the, uh, no, uh, theodicy. Theodicy. Uh, theophany is a revealing yeah. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so theodicies are what they call the problem of evil. Like, why is there evil in the world and God is good and all knowing? And, and, you know, I reflect, I was really grateful that she asked me the question, you know, that she felt safe to ask this and, and add me in, in the post, you know, what do you think? And there was a lot of people that said really crass things, just like, God just must really love killing people, da 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 And I think, man, and I was thinking, like, people's responses were very uncreative and not very interesting to me because this is something that, like, theologians have, and philosophers have wrestled with for thousands of years. I took a and course on it. Really, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. not easy. It's not like, and I haven't really, re- like, come across any argument when it comes to the problem of evil that isn't already in the Bible. Um, and in some way or another where people at least express it. Um, so it's not, it's not unique, um, particularly. And I would also argue, and this Tina isn't a, a slam against you, but more an observation. It's a, it's a question that comes from privilege. Um, because people that, uh, are actually suffering, uh, that deal with oppression, uh, day to day aren't asking these questions. Their questions are totally different. That's what I've learned. Um, it's people that have the like safety and the, the the certain amount of wealth and the certain amount of comfort to then to be able to reflect on the like the nature of life, like we're doing right now. And Where so like ninety five percent of life is good, and five yeah, percent of life is but, crappy. So why does God give me that five percent of crap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's the thing that's really interesting. If you listen to oppressed people and the theology that comes out of that mm-hmm. they're not asking questions like why does God allow this to happen mm-hmm. they're asking questions like what are we supposed to do about it yeah or how is and, God redemptive in suffering yeah yeah for sure like but I've noticed particularly there's this sort of like well what now like like so what do we do and when I look closer to the Bible, and the Bible's written by people that know what it's like to have the heel of the empire on their necks, um, and they're writing from that perspective. And so the Bible doesn't like explicitly answer those questions in that the way that we ask them, because it comes from the perspective of the oppressed. Mm. They're going like, God, what the hell? Do something. And, and they're going, well, what are we supposed to do about it? Like, what now? How are we supposed to confront systems of death and 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 pain and suffering? Like, how do we enter into it? Like you say, in, in a redemptive kind of way. Yeah. Um, so, so it's it's interesting how our questions, even about evil, come from our particular context. And so, with like Jesus and the Gospels 
and the resurrection and the New Testament church, it's more like, okay, so this is what we're going to do about evil and suffering. We're going to actually, like, create community, and we're going to, like, make sure no one among us it goes without. Um, we're going to um, we're going to look out for the widow and orphan. Mm-hmm. We're going to pay attention to people that are in uh, in situations where they are oppressed and find ways to free them from that. Um, and, and, I, and I think one of the other shocking things there. Oh, sorry, one of the other big things in that is that God is working with and through those actions. Is so so the story goes. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, you know the story about like um, uh, Ellie Weissel that uh, you died recently a couple years ago. He was uh, in uh, as a boy. He was in Auschwitz. No. And, um, yeah, and you know he writes about that experience and a lot of wisdom and uh, Jewish writer and. Uh, that I forget if you became a Christian or something. I don't. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But there was a story about a boy who was actually hung in the gallows in front of everybody. The Nazis hung this little boy, and his body was so like didn't have enough weight for him to die. So he just hung there, struggling and suffocating for a long, long time. And somebody in the crowd watching this happen cried out like where is god like where is god and it's just a like a grief like a, just a grief-stricken thing and ellie weissel's uh work in response was well he's on the gallows he's the one that's hanging there hmm. and 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 to me that is what makes sense like god is wasn't content with giving us answers like to appease our intellect as much as God was interested in like entering into suffering and like creatively suffering with us um, and then like coming out the other side of it um, in a way that kind of defeated it to me those kind of existential uh, ways of addressing suffering um, are far more effective in life and uh, in terms of being in solidarity with people and actively working towards relieving suffering as opposed to now I know the answer to like why suffering exists. Some butterfly flapped its wings in South Africa and that led to this and that led to this and that led to this. Yeah. That's a crazy theory. And now I know why something happened, you know, um, but a God that kind of enters into suffering with us and can freely say that like that God actually knows what suffering is like. is far more compelling to me than uh, a deity that's sort of far off that just sends out um, fortune cookie answers about like why thing, bad things happen to good people. Mm-hmm. And in you, fact, I would say the, the book of Job, let me, I'll just finish with this. The book of Job, people misunderstand the book of Job all the time. They get totally caught up in the prologue as like developing some theology like God and the devil had a wager. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, this completely misses the point. Yeah. The point is, like, the majority of the content of the book is about Job's friends and how their answers are all inadequate. And <clears throat> the book of Job is, like, the first book that was ever written in the Bible. It's yeah. the oldest book of the Bible. And so it's almost as though, you know, like, God is saying, like, before you need to know anything about, like, 
about anything, about me, about like the thing, like suffering is completely absurd and there are no answers. Right. You <laughs> read Gutierrez? Third story. Pardon me? Have you read Gustavo Gutierrez's book on Job? No, I haven't, but I've read Gutierrez before. Yes, he's a liberationist liberation yeah, this yeah. theologian and um yeah i mean the whole idea of ret- retributive suffering is totally dismantled by the book of job mm-hmm. um yeah yeah the other one i was going to ask you about is james cohen have you read cross and the lynching tree i've heard about it i have yet to read it because um, it would be the same sort of thing as the weissel thing that you were just saying where yeah. um you know the the lynched body of a of a black man hanging from a tree is the is the crucified christ um yeah and the crucified christ is is on the tree yet again so there's this sort of thing he talks about of like re-crucifying christ every time there was a lynching and um that that, that's a word that's come up a lot in this minneapolis stuff too just to bring it all the way back around that um, yeah, it really, it really is. It really is. And just to tag on to that, I would say that like God's answer to Job yep. is Jesus. Mm. How so? That that is in the sense of like God suffering, God right. entering into suffering um, with Job. Jesus, God becoming Job, <laughs> is I think God's answer ultimately to Job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah. So Minneapolis just absolutely like heartbreaking and awful, um, and uh, that you know just the video and everything, um, so so disturbing. But at the same time, not surprising and not shocking. These things are happening all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah, and it's sort of um, as we were talking about chaos and society being disrupted. the The outcome of it, you know, being in Canada, we we have the luxury of being somewhat separate from um, this barrage of shitty news articles of cops killing people without uh, without reason. I'd say I'll just say that without reason. And yeah, um, I don't know, man. I, I think I think there is a I think there well is without a good re- without justifiable it's not, reason. It's not a good reason. It's not justifiable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a reason. But we we're separate from it in a certain way. But I'm surprised that it's taken this long. To be quite honest, for um, for this sort of I really don't want to use the word riot, but uprising is is the word that the Minneapolis uprising yeah. is what this is being called, yeah. and. Um, I think it's a good word. I think it is people rising up and saying we've had enough. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just interested to see how far it goes because they really need to make some changes, and those changes have not come through. The, the comparison that's going around a lot right now is the Colin Kaepernick photo um, yeah. right next to the photo of the cop, Derek, Gurney or something yeah. kneeling on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So, you know, it's, it is, it's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, power that's moving through this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, you know, what, are, what do you think, you know, like how have you been feeling as you engage this? Well, I saw, I think his name is George Floyd. 
Yeah, that's yeah, the man's George name Floyd who was killed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I saw yeah. the photo of George Floyd posted by LeBron James on Twitter a couple days ago. And but I didn't know that he had died when I saw that photo. I didn't know any of of the story. I just saw the photo and thought yeah, that's like a classic photo of a white cop right there. Like I, I just saw it and thought there's another video of another cop being an asshole. I didn't know that the end of that the next step of that photo was that he had died. And this morning when I, I opened Twitter again and started seeing a lot of tweets about racism and a lot of tweets about change, and then I started seeing um, tweets about how to take care of tear gas, and I was like, okay, what the hell's going on? So <clears throat> I spent about 90 minutes this morning um, catching up in the Twitterverse and then reading some news articles, which I, and I found Twitter to be much more informative and helpful because the main voices that I'm seeing on Twitter in regards to this are black voices or black people who are um, Americans and who are tired of it. And and it's very different than just the, the facts, right? Because you're getting, yeah. you're getting the feelings, you're getting the, like their ghosts come out, right? Um, yeah, yeah, totally, man. There's a ghost of America that they, that they have to name and, uh, and work through. So, uh, I, it was pretty jarring. Like the one photo that really stands out is like the whole police precinct, just like, it, it, like engulfed in flames. Was such it's such an incredible photo, and I saw somebody else tweet that it's the first time in American history that citizens have um, cleared out a police station and destroyed it. Um, uh, I, wonder, I don't know if that's true. I think Detroit, that's happened in Detroit a few times. Well, I know there was the Detroit. I know there was the Detroit riots as well, or uprisings. And yeah, I didn't. I I couldn't confirm or not whether they actually got the police station burned to the yeah, ground. Yeah, I don't or know. Not. Yeah, um, yeah, it's good. But still very profound. Um, uh, and uh, Tina, what about you? Like, how do you feel? Uh, and what do you think? Seeing all of this unfold. To be perfectly honest, I haven't really followed it a lot. I've been avoiding the news this week because it was just starting to not be a healthy space for me in terms of COVID and all these other, you know, things. So I was taking a media break, but I did catch on the news this morning in the car or sorry, it was this afternoon, I think that I believe the officer um, involved has been charged with murder. I haven't, yeah, yeah. yeah, I haven't like looked it up to verify it or anything. So then I was kind of like, well, what the heck's going on? And I did notice on social media, all the, the discussion about racism and white privilege and all this other, these other things were happening. And I just, um, have had a lot of other stuff going on uh-huh. and it, it's not a good excuse at all to, but, um, I've had to just kind of like remove myself from the news and whatever. So I haven't been caught up and I can't make a, a good enough statement right now other than I've just started to be like, holy cow, like something's really going on and this is a big deal yeah. and I need to become informed and that's my like next step. Um, but I've just been in a space where like work has been challenging this week and I know it's not an excuse at all. It's not a good excuse, but I just had to kind of shut down the news and everything else and just be like, okay, you know, take a break. But, um, 
it's, yeah. it's terrible. And I, I definitely want to learn more and figure out, you know, what's going on, but I've kind of just like let this mm. pass and I didn't really realize the level of it until, I mean, Zach and I were talking about it a bit over dinner, but other than that, I don't really know. You don't have to be an expert in all the news. No, no. Yeah, I just, I just wondering how you folks felt. Um, uh, cause you know, like I haven't actually like talked to a lot of people about it directly. Just, I've just seen what people have posted and written and I, you know, I have my own thoughts about it and, um, something that, you know, I really, um, have thought about is how we're all looking for scapegoats, sacrifices, and someone or something to crucify. Mm. And by that, I don't mean, uh, I don't mean speaking negatively about what the black community is doing right now. Minneapolis, they, they have every right to stand up. They're grieving, they're angry, and they need to express that anger. And I hope, I hope it's not done with more loss of life. Um, and as Martin Luther King has said, you know, like riots and whatever you want to call it are the language of the unheard. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and so, you know, this people that haven't been heard and, uh, but what I would say is that the, the, the black body has been the scapegoat, um, has been the sacrifice in our culture. Um, and indigenous people have been the scapegoat to sacrifice in our culture for a long time. Um, in particular, um, you know, we think of sacrifices as like primitive religion and all this kind of stuff. Um, but, I think modern life, even secularism and modern religion, still wants sacrifices. We want people to pay for our lifestyles, and so we sacrifice uh, other people in order to pay for our lifestyles. Or we want someone or something to vindicate our own fragile self, sense of self-righteousness, that those are the bad people and we're the good people, and we, so we won't need to divide things out. Um, or we cruelly sacrifice people online through like shame and our quest to be right about all our opinions and stuff. But particularly for progressive white people like me, we look for scapegoats to appease our own insecurity about things like race and avoid like looking in the mirror and doing our own work to change our attitudes and behaviors that regularly harm black lives. Um, And I think it's exemplified by like the the murderer George Floyd uh, this past week um, by these Minneapolis police officers. Um, we're a part of a system that fuels this kind of violence, and these officers certainly need to be held accountable and they need to face justice. But if we collectively don't learn that we're a part of a larger system of sacrificing and scapegoating, um, even in Canada, uh, people of color will continue to be victimized in ways that their white counterparts aren't. Yeah, Such absolutely. as like the, the Canada divide. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't mention the Canada divide to say like we don't have a problem with race in this country, but um, yeah. or racism. <laughs> race is yeah. not the problem. Racism is the problem. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. just to say like the level of violence that is that comes out of the states. I mean, we can talk about the history of indigenous people in this country and find you know violence there as well, uh, and towards uh, black and Asian people. Uh, there's yeah. no secret, but yeah, the, the intensity with which it comes out of the States and the amount of guns involved and how recurring it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, for me, I think the first one that really 
broke for me was like Trayvon Martin. Yeah. You know, Trayvon, when Trayvon Martin happened, when Trayvon Martin was murdered, the floodgates sort of opened. Like you started seeing a lot more the coverage of unarmed black guy, unarmed black guy, unarmed black guy, mm-hmm. handcuffed black person, <laughs> arrested black person ends up dead. On and on and on and on and on. And it's just been brutal to watch unfold and continue on. But again, like, I'm surprised it took this long for people to burn down a police station, you know? For sure, for sure. But I think, like, here's the thing. And I totally agree with you. And I think some of the challenge, though, is um, for white progressives. Um, you know, we have this thing like we go, OK, look, and, and rightly so. We look at white demonstrators walking into government buildings holding automatic weapons mm-hmm. and they're demanding their rights to get a haircut. And there's like no consequences. Right. And then and then and then people of color are displayed as thugs and when they protest and make an issue and they're shot dead, like in a matter of seconds, you know, it's, it's absurd. Right. And so we look at that. But white progressives look at that and we get this soothing ego feeling of being progressive. We go, yeah, man, that's absurd. Those gun-toting white people are crazy. Go team progressive. You know, but we <laughs> but we don't actually do anything to change ourselves or live actually in solidarity with people suffering oppression. It just becomes a placebo, another like white social justice placebo to so what our you- ego mythology. What are you? Uh, what are you suggesting? Like, what is? What are your? Uh, what's your four steps to doing something about yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I started to one put myself under the teaching of people of color um, and people that are oppressed. So, like I said, I was talking about like how people that are oppressed talk about uh, theology and the problem of evil. Right. Um, uh, um, my spiritual director is a person of color who lives in Detroit and he um, I realized that I just radically changed from just like sitting under his leadership like submitting to him and his guidance has you know radically changed the way that I approach things when I realized that all my teachers uh, in theology were all like white men not even women I had some white women like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, yeah, I had some white women and some people of color as well, indigenous as well. Yeah, you know, I didn't have any. Of that. It was all white men, and you know, it's, that's old school. I think. Yeah, I know. Is and so, you know, needing to step into these sorts of spaces and expose myself to um, uh, what um, oh, I forget the guy that the teacher's name, but he talked about it as. Um, he's from like he does the, like Latino theology, which is a step beyond liberation theology from South America. Is it like, um, a lot of uh, Nestor Medina? No, oh. no. He wrote the book Jesus for Revolutionaries, um, and and he talked about um, the God given uh, cultural wealth of the nations, hmm. and not as like gold and money, but as in the God given cultural wealth is what in the book of revelation, it says the gates are always open and the, the wealth of the nation is brought in. It's actually the word ethnos, 
is where we get the word ethnic. Right. And it's that, that the, the actual ethnic wealth of the nations is a part of the future kingdom of God um, here on earth. And um, that world where, you know, we're one and there's you know, God wipes away every tear. That, so that we're journeying towards this thing where it's like all the good and wonderful things that God has given to every ethnicity um, is a part of our lives. And so starting to pay attention to the God-given cultural wealth and how they view theology and how they view spirituality and life has been uh, just a treasure to me and changed a lot of my outlook. Um, so I don't, so I, I'm careful not to lean on just feeling progressive mm-hmm. and that is some kind of ego mythology that makes me feel good about myself. So then I don't have to do the inner work of where my internalized racism still exists. Um, where, um, where I don't have to do the heavy lifting. I was, I, uh, was a part of doing, a. Uh, anti-racism slash community building workshop with my spiritual director in, in Pontiac, Michigan recently. And it was just a huge honor to do a workshop with him because he's like marched with Martin Luther King. He's like, you know, a, a retired Episcopalian priest that's done a lot of work in Detroit. And he asked me if I would do this with him. And so I shared a story about me uh, visiting some friends in Detroit who lived, I mean, in Chicago, who lived in um in the in Garfield Park in the uh, in the in the West Side of Chicago, and uh, I pulled up into their neighborhood, and they're white, but the neighborhood is predominantly black. And I remember feeling frightened. I, I uh, you know, I consider myself a you know progressive person, but if I'm really honest with myself, I was kind of frightened. And I saw all of these big black men outside having barbecues, and uh, and I I wanted to not be afraid, but if I'm really honest, I was, and I noticed them noticing me, and so I just kind of like gulped and like walked over and said hi and said I'm friends with Josh and Anna, and they're like, oh hey, come over and have a burger, and like they're not home yet, and but uh, any friends of Josh and Anna are friends of ours, and. And it was like totally de-escalated the whole thing. But I realized that I was just so fragile and that I had been indoctrinated into fearing black bodies. That in in North America, black bodies are either a pet or a threat, according to um, uh, Dr. Soon Chen Ra. That's heavy. Yeah. And so it's like either they're entertainers, they're pets. And they entertain us for sports or music, or they're a threat to us. They're a threat to our white women. They're a threat. They're gonna. They're gonna do something, you know. And and I realized that that, that was kind of internalized in me, and I didn't even know it was there. But even that, so even I, even what you just said, they're a threat to our white women. What I immediately thought of was uh, auto, the the bi- autobiography of Malcolm X, and uh, yeah. and the the stories of. Being in uh, hotels or hotels or apart, their apartment apartments apartments with white women, um, who's very much been there. And so, when you say they're a threat to our white women, I immediately think of like how then control over f- female bodies is yeah, just as totally. just as uh, like in there as control over black bodies. Uh, yeah, it's also a part of what's going on, and. Yeah, there's all sorts of like structural power dynamics uh, that are happening uh, in in just a simple like moment like those those moments, and and me needing to have a reckoning with that 
and like confess that and acknowledge that in myself. And it's completely irrational. These are the most hospitable, welcoming people to me. And so I just could like confess that in front of this whole group of people, which there was a lot of people of color in this, in this room. And then I invited all the white folk to break out into small groups and to do the same thing that I just did. You did this and at a barbecue? So I said, no, I no, I no. That was the, that was where the situation happened. This was uh, a workshop in Pontiac. Oh, that was the workshop. Where I was okay. teaching about anti-racism. Yeah, and so like, <laughs> no, it wasn't like flipping burgers. I'm like, okay, we're gonna do an anti-racism. We're gonna do a breakout thing. room now, please. <laughs> I'm gonna have burgers over there and hot dogs over there, please. <laughs> now, if you have a hot dog, partner up with somebody who has a burger and talk about talk about white supremacy, if you would. And <laughs> you know, I actually probably would end up doing that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's all right. But but uh, no, this is the workshop, and uh, and so then I had these uh, white people, older white people in this little small group that I was facilitating. I was trying to nurture a space where we could talk about this um, openly. And they went around and they shared all sorts of examples of this internalized racism. It was so incredible for them to admit it and feel like they could and confess it and to like um, let that ghost go. Hmm. The best statement I heard about Um, that was from... um, uh, uh, West, brother West. What's his What's his first name? Cornell, <laughs> Doctor Cornell West, who in his CBC yeah. Massey lectures talks uh, really briefly. He says that uh, if if you think you if you don't think there's no white supremacy in you, well, let me tell you this: uh, I'm a I'm a black man from Chocolate Side of Chicago, and I've been doing this for a long time, and I know there's some white supremacy in me, and if that's true, then I know there's some white supremacy in you. Deep down there, it is there, and we got to all work work that out. And it's, yeah. I mean, part of the thing too that's hard about the conversation, and this is my own fragility coming through, but is the uh, the feeling that this is not a conversation you and I should be having in in any appropriate sense. You know what I mean, like. We, where do we get off talking about this and recording this and talking about our observations of these problems that we uh, we are mostly perpetrators of and not so much impacted by? I guess in the same way, though, we're also victims of it, but certainly not to the same degree. Yeah, well, or, you know, I think a lot of it starts with listening yeah. to black and voices, you know, and, and um, that, what that's led me towards is them saying, like, do your own fucking work. Yeah, exactly. It's not my you job know, to educate you. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, just do it and like figure it out. So we're kind of doing that right now, and it might be sloppy. It might be messy. Yeah. Um, but we're figuring out like what are my ingrained biases, and what am I afraid of? Um, uh, you know, a lot of the discussion now too is about that woman who called the police. Christian uh, that Cooper. Woman called the police up a black guy. You know, she's walking her dog or something, and I don't know. Didn't like what he was doing with his dog. Like was off the leash. No, he, he didn't. The police he didn't have a dog. You don't know this story. I don't know. Something happened in the. All park right, let me t- let me break this down for you. Just, this is a birder story. Yeah. I'm 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 down with the birder 
scene. So this guy's name is Christian Cooper. First of all, he's uh, he is black. He was birding in a place called the Ramble, which is this sanctioned off area of Central Park where uh, it is meant to be like a nature preserve type space, and it, the dogs are not allowed to be off leash. So this woman, who the internet has been calling Karen. Um, Karen's dog was running around in the ramble off leash and he said excuse me can you please put your dog on a leash or he said something to that effect she and then and then there was this confrontational thing where so the the thing that she says he said was if you're going to do whatever you want to do I'm going to do whatever I want to do and you're probably not going to like that and then he pulled out dog treats and was going to start feeding her dog dog treats because his in his experience if if, if you if you don't want your dog to be fed by strangers, you're going to put it on a leash. Otherwise, they're going to feed your dog. So that was his move, and he keeps dog treats on him just for this purpose because he's I guess he's regularly telling people in the ramble, keep your dog on a leash because they'll chase the ground birds, and that's not what that space is for. And it's posted yeah. that it's not a leash-free zone. So then she kind of she went off on him, and then she, she started making these claims that she was being – threatened and her life was at risk and she tells him I'm going to call the cops and I'm going to tell them there's an African American man threatening my life and he goes you can, you tell him whatever you want to tell him and he was recording it wow. and, uh, and then she like stomped right up to him got right in his face pointed her finger stop recording me and then was claiming that she was very afraid for her safety and he was threatening and aggressive and right. like oh my gosh very, very much a piss off that situation and uh <laughs> Canadian, didn't she? Oh, please stop. No. 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 Yeah. No. Yeah, she's Canadian. Yeah, she's Canadian. Uh, what? No, she's not. She, worked, she works for some law firm or something or some financial firm in New York no, City. No, seriously. Like, like, I actually know Canadians who know her. It's very stereotypical. Uh, does she want to be on my <laughs> podcast? Can you, can you hook that up? Uh, I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, that's, you know... You know, these sorts of uh, examples of fragility, like we need to talk about as white people and really get to the bottom of it, what's going on. And I think one of the things that I did come across was her quote unquote apology, which was not an apology. Mm. And I like I think this is why I work in the field of restorative justice is because we don't actually know what to do with with um, harm. When people have been harmed, um, we're we're more concerned with like covering ourselves or like trying to smooth things out. When um, you know, I don't. When crime happens, when people are harmed, when racism, hate crimes, whatever goes down, that's harm before it's breaking a law. Like this woman broke the law by like calling the police in terms of like misusing emergency services. Um, because she's fragile uh, when it comes to you know a black person and has some internalized racism, but the 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 when she apologized, it wasn't about that at all. It was like, oh, this was just a misunderstanding, and so it, she didn't take responsibility mm-hmm. for uh, what she was doing and how she was using her emotions to manipulate, um, and the. The restorative justice looks at like the nature of harm and and really works at trying to listen to the harm that's been uh, that's been experienced and then determine what like needs to happen 
from the people that have actually been harmed, like listening to them and go, well, like, what do you need if you've been harmed? And let me hear that first. And then let's work together and go like, what do, what, where are the responsibilities when it comes to repairing that harm? Like whose responsibility is it? Or where are the various areas of responsibility so that we can work towards something but we don't. We can't even get there because the harm won't be acknowledged. The grief won't be acknowledged. And I think with the situation in Minneapolis, um, you know, even people that start talking about healing and starting, they're like they're not operating with mercy or in a restorative way because they're not letting people name and lament and feel the pain and, and call it what it is. They're just like trying to skip to forgiveness, skip to healing and not go through the process. And restorative justice, I think, really challenges us to slow down and go through the process. Um, and because when we don't, it just keeps coming back and we end up in a cycle that is pretty destructive. How did you get into working in restorative justice? And what, what's your context right now in that work? Yeah, so I work with long-term offenders, uh, men that have done like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in prison even. Um, guys that have done a long time like in the federal system, not the provincial system. People think that I go to the local Windsor jail. It's like, no, I work with guys coming out of the federal system like Kingston area, um, that have done more than any anything over two years is federal. And I particularly have worked with sex offenders and uh, people that have committed murder. Um, I got into this position. I just applied for a part-time chaplaincy position at a local halfway house. And for some reason, they hired me. And when I look back, I kind of, it kind of makes sense. It's, it's been very cathartic and um, because, you know, my, um, my father did time in jail. My stepdad did time. Um, uh, there's a lot of crime and just craziness around my life growing up and my addiction and mental health. And, and now I'm like serving people that have done time and like suffering with addiction and mental health and a number of other things. And so I, I just sort of like, oh, this kind of makes a lot of sense now in hindsight, even though I could have never really planned it to work out this way. I also felt really at home, just strangely. Um, uh, I felt like I was hanging out with my dad, you know, and <laughs> with some of these guys. Um, so it was very healing uh, in some ways and uh, seemed to have a natural knack for it. So, yeah, that's you know, like a long story short. That's how I got into it. And uh, since then, I've, you know, uh, just I guess it's been about 12 years I've been the chaplain at St. Leonard's House. And it's been just one of the most profound honors of my life to be able to serve people that have, have made terrible, terrible mistakes and are trying to figure out like what it means to like live in the community again mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. also hold the, the guilt and the, and the shame of their offense and, and the remorse, but also like move forward with their life, even though the person that life they took can't. Mm-hmm. Is there a um, is there so a real common yeah. thread between each of these men who are coming out? Is there something that they all bring out of prison with them that's similar? Oh, 
tons of things. Um, well, you know, a lot of guys that are institutionalized, so they're so the the system like prison makes it so you like you need it in order to like survive. And so when they're sent out of prison, they don't know how to live in the world because they've been told when to eat, when to sleep, when to do anything. Um, so getting them deinstitutionalized is a big thing. One of the common things is when a guy's released. You know, sometimes I'll meet them at the train station, uh, you know, first time out in like 50 years or something. And so I see them like their eyes are wide. I can pick them out of a crowd, you know, I can tell. And so I'll go and pick them up to bring them over to the halfway house. And they're so relieved to see me when I introduce myself. And I say, hey, like, welcome to Windsor. We're glad to have you here. And it's just like I see tears fill up their eyes because they think that their crime is tattooed on their forehead mm. and that, like, everyone hates them. <laughs> and so, actually, one of the things that I often say to these guys is they're, like, really self-conscious. And they think everyone knows what they've done, even complete strangers. And I say, here's the really good news. No one cares about you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, what? And I'm like, you know, I care about you, of course. You know, there's there's people who care about you. But, like, all the people that you pass on the streets, they're thinking about themselves. They're thinking about their own problems. They're not thinking about you at all. Mm-hmm. It's not even occurring to them that you actually committed murder. They're not thinking about that at all. They don't care about you. They care about their own problems, their own situations. And they're like, that is the best bad news I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's it's man, it's so like there's so many things, so many things about it um, that are very interesting. And you know, I've I've taken guys to the grave of their victims before. There's no chaplaincy manual to like like oh, what do you do when you do this? Like um, I'm planning with a guy to do that very thing. In, uh, when once the quarantine lifts, um, I've you know worked in some restorative justice circles where like victims and offenders have been in the same room um, outside of a court, and like where the offender listens to the harm and uh, and answers questions of the victims, like some really like profound stuff um, that I can't really go into a lot of detail about uh, on a podcast, but. Yeah. Um, some incredibly healing uh, and uh, profound movement that happens that breaks down the the hostility between uh, victims and offenders in the community. That is all part of like restorative justice and and how we do things. I kind of take pleasure in subverting the traditional justice system and doing things that they can't and doing it for like almost no money at all. <laughs> Uh, you know, as opposed to lawyers that cost like thousands and thousands of dollars to do nothing and and achieve like very minimal results. Meanwhile, I can do something that achieves like incredible amount of results for like very little money. I enjoy sticking it to the system. <laughs> so you, um, you're also a pastor. Yeah. And just like me, your 
church and congregational life has really evolved throughout the pandemic. So um, one of the things that I've been connecting with in your work is your online videos. Uh, yesterday, I'm going to forget their names, Michelle and there was two women in it, Natalie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nat, Nat, Natalie, Natalie, and Maria. Maria, my bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I watched their meditation of the water there. Um, but I like it. You're putting out sort of these 20 minute, half hour uh, morning meditations with a call to worship. There's a prayer. You're dropping some some ideas on us. The one I really resonated with was the. I don't know if you use neighborhood as a parish, but sort of. Um, yeah. The neighborhood is what the church was meant to be, or the church was meant to be the neighborhood, something along those lines was yeah, yeah, where you landed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, just the neighborhood as a sacred place, you know. Um, mm. And uh, I think, you know, the early expressions of church kind of embodied that. And we got away from it as the empire of Christendom uh, kind of emerged. Yeah, around the third century, as we know, but uh, uh, and the questions today about reopening churches are really questions about reopening church buildings. But church buildings only came from uh, Christendom. They came from once the Christianity, the church, and the empire became the same thing. That's when church buildings started. But before that, it was in neighborhoods and homes and the church gatherings it wasn't in buildings and so this thing this obsession with opening church buildings to me is more about reopening christendom and less about seeing our neighborhoods and where we already live as sacred places that that exemplify all the things in a church the Mm -hmm. diversity that we want the the various personalities and challenges that we have in a neighborhood i think are what god is looking to do and bringing people around a table uh, to find some kind of like unity and diversity. Yeah, yeah that's, that's I'm with you. Yeah, so the, I the just, real like, challenge is like my neighborhood, and apparently some people told me too. I was channeling Mister Rogers in that <laughs> video, which I totally didn't intend to. He's he's pretty hot right now. Mister Rogers is is having a moment, or maybe he recently had a moment. <laughs> yeah, I hope yeah. he doesn't have any scandal. I really hope he doesn't. Oh. Why'd you even have to say it? Why'd you say it? No, I think he'll be all right. I think he was the real deal. I think, I think, I think he is. I think he'll be okay. Um, the hard part is, is even in the midst of, you know, you can make that change that you can make that move ecclesiologically to move away from the church building as the main ground of sacred meeting or whatever to the home the living room, the dining room table, around the island in the kitchen, in the backyard, whatever it might be, all these spaces have the potential to be sacred, maybe are and always are, but um, even those places are off limits right now for many people. And until we get orders that we can have, you know, gatherings of 10 or something, but even then it's like, with who and, and where have they been? And it's all... I feel like I'm just filled with suspicion and angst right now about everybody around me. I just assume everybody's got COVID, so I don't really want to be near people. Um, right. I don't like going yeah. in. I had to go to the pharmacy the other day. I don't like going in there. I don't, I don't like talking to people. And I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay with the suspicion. I think it's given me like some nice time to be introverted and 
not feel that pressure to be very outgoing and friendly. But I am asking everybody I see in a workplace, like, so how's it like we've been working here during COVID? And uh, I get mixed mixed reviews on that. For sure. You know, like, here's the thing, like, when it comes to church and the idea of, like, where two or three are gathered, yeah, it's not what we're used to, but, but you and Tina together are the full and total expression of church just as much as you would when you would go to uh, Sunday service at the church where you pastor. And that sounds kind of strange, but if we know how to tend to the presence of God and we learn how to grow in that, um, I really get a sense of the spirit of God being a part of like, you know, two people uh, just trying to be humble and merciful with each other mm-hmm. as they're getting like pissed off with being around each other constantly. Um, yeah, I've been doing that. Uh, work. Whenever I'm preaching at church now, if, I, if I'm preaching and any of the text has to do with our relationships with other people, or I'm doing a junior youth Bible study, grades six, seven, and eight, and we're talking about the Beatitudes, which have lots to do with how we treat our neighbor. Um, yeah. You know, typically I would move that into the realm of your school and how are you treating people at school? How are you treating the, the bully or the guy who's giving you a hard time or a teacher you don't really like or whatever it is. But now I've moved all of that like application of the teachings of Jesus. How do we apply those teachings in our homes with mom and dad when we're pissed off, with little brother, little sister, with big brother, big sister? Um, sure. You know, how do we yeah. how do we be people of grace and kindness and mercy and like the love of God in in the place that's most familiar and easiest to not act that way? Yeah, and also in relationship with ourselves, which I think is what we started talking about at the beginning. Like, how do, you know, people talk about a lot of it, like, you know, loving others as I love myself. But if you could switch that around, a lot of us are pretty compassionate people, I think, and we want to treat people well, but we we don't treat ourselves the way that we treat other people. We're pretty, we're pretty harsh with ourselves. Um, and we're pretty judgmental with ourselves and critical. And I, I just wonder, like, applying those things you're talking about yeah, amongst the family, like what it means to, like, love your family uh, as you're kind of held up in quarantine with them and you're annoyed with them and frustrated with them is a kind of mirror image of how you treat yourself. That, like, when we're uh, feeling hatred or we're feeling annoyance with other other people that are around us all the time we're just seeing a mirror image of ourselves we don't like what we see Mm. and we're seeing things in ourselves um through other people and so the invitation into um being compassionate and and charitable and patient with with who we are and what our struggles are i think helps us also be patient and loving and compassionate to the people that we're close to when we know that we're actually, Oh, I'm actually like taking out my own shit on my partner or I'm taking out my own problems on my kids. And I see something in them that I know is in me and I hate, I hate, I hate what I'm seeing. And knowing that like 
God, God has seen that all along and hasn't changed. It hasn't changed God's loyalty and and God's love and care for us individually. And so, if we can really internalize that um, and let that that in somehow, um, maybe we can be kinder to ourselves too, and as well as we're kind to other people. What do you think are some ways that we can let that stuff in and practice this? Well, I think for me anyways, it's been, uh, as I said before, really kind of owning my own shit going, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm in a bad mood, but it's really because I'm being sort of my own weaknesses are being like highlighted right now. And I don't like what I see. And so I'm trying to scapegoat someone. I'm trying to put it somewhere else. I'm trying to create a diversion. But if I can just really like own you know, my own behaviors, own my own attitudes, like whether it's, you know, when it comes to internalized racism and white supremacy, or it's, um, or it's just uh, my own insecurities about uh, my role in the family or my own insecurities about my finances or my uh, ability to be in control or my own fear of abandonment or my own like uh, fear of being harmed. And so it's like, I'm going to like be the one that's going to take charge here so that I don't feel harmed somehow. Hmm. Um, You know, these, all these kinds of, uh, attitudes and behaviors I think can come to the surface, but if we can really acknowledge them and we can see them or we can like talk about them and be willing to get to a place where we can identify them. Um, I think it can, it can do us, do us a lot of good and a lot of good for the people around us. Um, so it's, it's psychological work, I think mm-hmm. spiritual psychological work, um, that, uh, is painful, but it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, you're welcome. Something that I've been paying attention to during the quarantine is, I mean, I started using something called the Passion Planner Daily. I don't know if you've heard of Passion Planner or Passion It's kind of like a, the Passion Planner is originally kind of like a way of optimizing your schedule, but with a focus on goals and all the little steps to get towards that and whatever. And I mean, for me, when my day-to-day life in the before time looked, you know, fairly consistent, I didn't have to worry about a ton of appointments and stuff. I had a hard time setting the goals and figuring out what the steps were towards them and that sort of thing. So I have like an undated version of the passion planner so I can just use it when I want to plan out a week like crazy. But other than that, it's now just sitting on the shelf waiting for the next time. But the day, the passion planner daily is, um, again, undated, but I can, it's got kind of like one side of the page is completely blank. And so I generally use that for journaling, but you can do whatever you want. The other side of the page has kind of like a mood check-in, um, you know, it, it asks yeah. you to, um, the best thing that happened today or, um, what, you know, it's got kind of all these prompts and mood tracker, how I'm feeling, you know, one word for today, 
and it's got kind of a, a section you can also schedule your day in if you want. But um, in the in the beginning part of the book, it also has you mind map, you know, three months from now, a year from now, three years from now. Like if if you could have anything, just write it down. And for me, prior to a couple weeks ago, I really struggled with writing down like my deepest hopes and desires. And, um, I actually decided to just like open up and just write them down. I was terrified to do it, but I did it. And one of the things that came out and conversations I've had with friends lately and other people, um, and it's kind of a buzzword right now in some spaces, but the, the concept of reparenting and realizing that, you know, my parents did the best they could with the tools they had at the time. And there's a lot of baggage and things and learned behaviors and patterns that I have that I've, through years of therapy, have started to pick through and deconstruct. But I'm, I've kind of turned a new page in tracking that more closely and realizing, like, some things you were saying, like your attitude plays into it. You're like learning to identify those things that are coming out. You know, I emotions that I have or ways that I'm acting um, are really, if I stop and think about it for a second, you know, what's the bigger problem? Is it that I have no control and I want it? Or is it that... Um, you know, that's probably the big one a lot of the times, honestly, is wow. like I I get upset over something or I think, you know, I have to just be responsible and take on the weight of everything and I just, I, uh, I can't do it. That's not realistic either. And so right. I'm starting to just like journal and process and use these prompts to track uh, like the next part of my healing. And it's been... Um, interesting for me to take those extra seconds when those emotions come up, feel yeah. them, yeah. recognize them, but then go, okay, what's the underlying thing? What's the deeper issue here? What's that, that ghost or that thing where, you know, what's coming up from my past or whatever, right? And it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's very wow, interesting. That's that's really thank you, thank you, Tina, for sharing that. That that is really meaningful, um, and it sounds like you're really doing some profound work. Mm. You're welcome. I'm trying. It's 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 something that, um, and I know I need help in it, right? So it's uh-huh. it's about talking about it with. Yeah. Those that are close to me and reaching out to the therapist and like getting getting more t- to help me gain traction in this. But it's yeah. like, having time where, you know, outside of work, I'm not really doing a whole lot in life right now. And uh-huh. I was starting to fill my schedule with all the things I could do around the house or all the hobbies and baking and cooking that I could do. And then realize like I'm actually avoiding other issues, and now I'm just sitting sitting with them and trying to 
as they come up and as I have time and willingness to process it, I just want to, that's where I'm at right now is starting to learn some of those things that are, that I just easily cover over with productivity and busyness and schedule. And now I, I can't. Yeah, I'm so with you. I do the same thing and uh, do anything I can to avoid the, you know, the haunt, some of these things that are haunting me um, because it feels too painful. I'm afraid of like, what could happen if I really looked at this? Mm -hmm. What could happen to me? Will it like put all my life on hold? Will I not be able to even function or operate if, if I actually like acknowledge this and start to look at it because it feels that powerful um, and, uh, are you familiar with, um, Thomas Keating's programs for happiness? No. All right. Zach, are you familiar with that? No. Thomas Keating is a familiar name though. Yeah. So he, he died recently, but he's, um, uh, was a, uh, a contemplative, uh, Roman Catholic monk and in Colorado, and he talked about these programs for happiness. Um, he uh, really wanted to kind of get inside what, what you're talking about and really try to understand it from a spiritual and uh, prayerful uh, angle. And um, he, he talked about, like, when we're young, we all have appropriate needs for um, safety and security, love and affection, and power and control. Mm. Like we, we, we need all of those three things, love, security, and control, um, in order to establish ourselves as, as kids and develop an identity. Um, but what happens is at some point during our development, when we grow up, we learn the world isn't safe. And we learn how to protect ourselves through identifying with one particular program for happiness either love and affection, safety and security, or power and control. And so we we attach ourselves to one of those programs, and that's perfectly understandable as a kid, and it's not our fault. Uh, When we learn the world isn't safe, the world's at the harm us, um, and we find a way to get equilibrium back again through one of those programs, and then the problem is, though, that we over-identify with that program in our adult life, and it prevents us from, like, experiencing more of life. Um, it's like having our own, like, personal little soldier or maybe so I think of it as, like, a dragon uh, that, that protects us mm. and it keeps us in the cave and says, don't, I'll protect you. Like, don't, like, don't leave. I'll protect you. And we need to, like, give that protector, that dragon or that soldier a break um, as we identify, like, something that we've over-identified with um, to keep ourselves safe and have a certain equilibrium in life. Um, And so, for example, like, with, you mentioned control, I, you know, I struggle with that, too. I struggle with, like, control. Like, I've always been, like, the peacemaker, uh, even with my family, when my family struggled a lot with addiction, and uh, my dad in a jail and just a lot of chaos. I was the counselor, even at like five years old. I was like counseling my parents, mm. listening to them, supporting them, like worried about them and soothing them. And 
I over-identified with this sense of control that actually seems virtuous on the surface and like, oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that nice? But it, it held me captive. It's like how I get my own equilibrium. It's how I get my own sense of safety. My own sense of peace is by the peace and safety, the peace and, uh, and serenity of other people. And so then when I took that in my adult life, is it any wonder I became a chaplain and a pastor and a spiritual director? <laughs> you know, no, it's like out of my own brokenness, I entered into these fields. Wounded healing. Um, yeah, because I needed healing. Mm-hmm. And so it's like pretty codependent, if you ask me. But God is just so gracious and, and still uh, uses this stuff in spite of me in that way. And but continues to propel me towards uh, my own insight and healing so that I don't take out my own need for catharsis on other people or use the people that I serve to purely meet my own needs mm-hmm. um, try to be at least aware of it that the counter transference doesn't, doesn't happen but uh, my point being that you know understanding these programs for happiness and how we've like over identified with one particular program and what it means to embrace even the other programs uh, what it means to like if we're concerned with like control as a way to get come back to ourselves or feel uh, secure or something that we can actually um, turn ourselves over hmm. to other people through consent. We can cons- consent to letting people love us hmm. and not being in control of them. Uh, to like fall into them uh, and and let them love us. That's frightening. Oh yeah, and, yeah. That is so frightening. Um, but letting letting people love us and not trying to control them. Like it's. I, I just got off a call with um, a guy uh, that I'm, you know, an ex offender that I was counseling, and and he said he was afraid of being a burden to his kids in his old age. Mm. And I said, of course, of course you would be. And he's like, he wasn't expecting me to respond that way. Like, what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, of course you would feel that way. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you're used to being the one who's showing love and affection. And that's a position of control, but like receiving love hmm. is letting go of control. And it's far scarier and it's far more uh, vulnerable and leaves room to be harmed. And so it makes sense that you wouldn't want to be a burden because you wouldn't want to be hurt. You wouldn't want to be in a position where someone else could control you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Riley, man, hey, we're going at like, we're coming up on an hour and a half here. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, an hour and thirty-one minutes, dude. This is this is our longest uh, our longest one yet. This is episode twenty-one of the show. And no way. Yeah, man. I'm sorry, you probably have to do all the sorts of editing. I'm not editing anything. This whole thing's going up. No way. Oh, yeah, gosh. man. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna uh, post well, it, and people will listen to as far uh, as they want. Man. If that's cool with you, unless oh, you funny. unless you need me to fix it, but uh, it's been great. I'm not no. I'm not complaining about the time at all. I, I oh, just well, I'm, I'm grateful that you would think of me and I'm grateful to hear from both of you too just your own journey 
whether it's, uh, you know, white privilege and racism or it's uh, our own doing our own inner work and figuring out, you know, what this time in our in our lives, this time in our history could do to help us grow. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just so appreciate hearing from you, Tina and Zach. Like, um, I, I've never met you before, Tina, in person, I don't think. Um, but uh, it just really sounds like you're a wonderful, wonderful person that is doing a lot of inner work. And uh, I thank you, honor you for, for sharing that. Thanks, Riley. Tina's weeping in the corner now. <laughs> <laughs> She's doing uh, I, I will have another drink and uh, get there too. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll join you in that. Hey, man, we're, we're going to have to have you back and have like a good solid chat about restorative justice from cover to cover with you. And, um, yeah. you know, you, you're, uh, one thing I appreciate about you is you've got your hands in a lot of pots, it seems like. So you're doing restorative justice work in chaplaincy pieces, and then you're also a pastor of a church um, doing, doing that life as well, plus... Uh, whatever you get up to on the side. So there's lots to talk about, and uh, it's easy to talk to you, man. So we'll have to have you back sometime. And uh, oh, dude, uh, I would love to. Yeah. Thank you. I did that. Thanks for joining us today and for sharing your thoughts on everything and parts of your story as well. And I hope that I can meet you in the after time <laughs> in, in real life. <laughs> whatever that world looks like. The afterlife. We'll have a drink in person. Yeah. That's right, the the, uh, post-pandemic apocalypse. The millennium. What do they call it? The millennium? Will that be the millennial reign? Is that that what's coming? (laughs) Okay, we got to go. We're not starting that one. We're not starting that one. (laughs) Later, Riley. Okay, see you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, okay. Riley McLaren. That's awesome. Yeah, we could go for hours with that dude. Yeah, we'll definitely call him back. No, I was ready to just keep sitting and just letting him go. He's yeah, great. We'll just have to do another episode. We will. Yeah. All right, so what's going on now? We got a couple projects on the go tomorrow night. We got some dudes in Novasco mm-hmm. getting on here. Um, we're gonna we're gonna do some work on Ecuador by the by the time the weekend is over. That's our commitment to you here on episode twenty one. Mm-hmm. And hmm, what else? Probably some other things in the pipe. That I don't remember right now. Jeremy Bensett. Oh yeah. We keep we keep teasing Jeremy oh, Bensett. Oh yeah. He's coming. We've been in contact. We've been in contact. We're also trying to get somebody in on the ground in Minneapolis to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not sure how that process is going. But if you're a listener, if you're one person who's listening to this, and you do know somebody in Minneapolis who would want to share their story and their perspective on what's going on right there right now at this time in history, we'd be happy to talk with them about all of that and to hear their story and just to be listeners of, uh, of what they're calling for down there. So without further ado, we thank you for joining us on episode 21 of the... Great Indoors. The Great Indoors. If you want to hear more from Riley McLaren, you can look up Windsor Mennonite Fellowship on YouTube and check out all of his Sunday meditations. There must be about 10 of them up now. And uh, that's about five hours worth of material for you to check out from Riley and just to get more of his ethos and Christian practice and spirituality because it's good stuff. It's uh, 
Helpful stuff at this time. Mm-hmm. We should have asked him what it's called. I'm going to keep calling it local problems for a global, local solutions to a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I'm calling it. But I don't think that's exactly what it's called. We'll have to talk, talk about it in the next We'll have to catch him again him. in a few yeah. weeks or something. Yeah. Anyways. Well, congratulations on making it to the end of this episode. It's yeah. a marathon. Way to go, guys. We applaud you. Yes. Okay. Take care of yourselves. Until next time. Until next time.